House of Mystery presents Inside Writing, the radio show where authors discuss their writing process in all genres. Welcome back into the House of Mystery, and I'm Al Warren sitting at the controls. And the other side of the country, we've got the great and only David Rose Martino. <laughs> You still got the rose thing in there, right? Well, people people tend to tend to like that, so oh, you know, you know let's just stick with Rosie. Rosie, Rose. I would call you Marty, but nobody nobody likes that. So. Marty, Marty. That's very Marty old. from Boston. Yeah, see, that's what I mean. I was just thinking, you know, that would work, but yeah, nobody likes it. So. They don't like it. No, people are mean. They are. Yeah, turn, yeah, they turn into something helpful. <laughs> it's not Marty when it's finished. It becomes something really bad. So we can't say that on air anyway. But um, so now today, I think it's the first author that we've got from Pegasus. No, actually, it would be the second because, you know, John Copenhagen yeah. is one from Pegasus. Oh, I don't know if you knew that, but he's from a different division, but he's written for uh, for them as well, and his second oh. book is through them, so Excellent. kind of a coincidence, but this is our first non-John. Non-John. <laughs> <laughs> so um, what, who we've got sitting on the line all the way from Scotland uh, in his home, ready to have his haggis and talk about his new book, we've got uh, Robert J. Harris. Thank you for taking the time. Yeah, Robert J. Harris is my authorial name, but people just call me Bob normally. So you yeah. can do that. You're well, special guy. Yeah, well, you know, I don't, don't want to be too personal there right away. <laughs> but now your book is A Study in Crimson, Sherlock Holmes, 1942. Um, so very interesting uh, take on Sherlock Holmes. What got you into writing this book? Like, why did you go into uh, doing a crime book and with Sherlock Holmes? Well, it's a bit of a departure. I mean, I start off, my first books I wrote were um, teen novels that I wrote with my friend Jane Yolen um, some years back. Uh, in my solo career, I wrote a couple of teen historical adventure stories. Then um, I was writing, uh, I guess, middle grade novels. I did a series of comic fantasies set here in St. Andrews. And um, then followed up with the, the next idea I had was to write, well, some, some stories about the young Arthur Conan Doyle. It says schoolboy days, his early teens. And the idea would be, there's only one of them originally I worked out. So I wrote a novel about you know, young Leonardo da Vinci, one about young um, well, Shakespeare. So the Conan Doyle is going to be a third in this kind of series of young legends. And um, so being Conan Doyle, I thought, well, you have an adventure in, in Victorian Edinburgh, which will sort of lay the groundwork for the inspiration for Sherlock Holmes in later years. But um, my publisher at that point, they, 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 they said, actually, this would be a great series because you write more than just the one, which gave me a bit of freedom. So I've written three of those. It's called The Arthur Conan Doyle Mystery, um, in which the young Arthur Conan Doyle in Victoria Edinburgh has to solve the mysteries of the grave robbing and sabotaging the addition back. And in the third book, uh, uh, there's a mysterious invisible thief who's uh, robbing jewels around, around the town. And in the course of writing these, of course, it crossed my mind. I was trying to make make mysteries worthy of Sherlock Holmes um, to make it, get the atmosphere of the stories. And that made me think, of course, about maybe writing a Sherlock Holmes novel. Um, the problem with that is there are actually an awful lot of Sherlock Holmes pieces out there. I, mean, I, I barely read a fraction of them. Um, but uh, I, once I started looking on my Kindle, I realized that people who've written like 20, and, and most of them are 
you know, trying to recreate kind of Victorian adventure with greater or lesser success. Um, and then there's spin-off things with Moriarty and the Strad and stuff like that. And so I thought, well, if I wrote another Sherlock Holmes novel, nobody would care. They would get no attention. At all. Uh, and then one day, my eye uh, lighted upon my box DVD set of the Battle Rathbone Sherlock Holmes films. The first two, which are set in Victorian times, Fox Pictures made those, the Hounds of Baskervilles and then The Adventure of Sherlock Holmes. Then they dropped the whole thing. They weren't going to keep them going. I guess they figured there weren't enough good stories uh, available to keep it going. And Universal Pictures stepped in and they, they said, well, we'd like to take this up. Um, and they made a deal with the, the Doyle estate. He died in 1930, so the stories were under copyright because his family still owned the rights to all this. They couldn't make films of them without actually making a deal with them. And they agreed with Universal's ideas to, to kind of refresh the whole thing by updating it to the 1940s um, for various reasons. Um, but um, one of which, of course, was like, you know, during the war. And Sherlock Holmes was a great champion for, uh, for beleaguered Great Britain at that time. Um, and so that Rathbone and Bruce, Michael Bruce and Dr. Watson, who played one of his first two Victorian films, also were starring in a very popular radio series as Holmes and Watson, set in Victorian times, were very well established. So now when they actually made the first film, Sherlock Holmes and the Voice of Terror, the transition seemed very, very smooth. I mean, watching them again years later, before any thought came to make a novel out of them, I was always struck how easily they just moved into 1940s. Suddenly, you know, we've got aeroplanes and cars, but still Sherlock Holmes, still, you know, Baker Street looks much the same. Um, and uh, so I, I, I was thinking about this, and I, the idea came to me, well, nobody's ever thought to take that version of Sherlock Holmes. It's very well established. There were 12 of the Universal Pictures series, and, um, you know, they're always on television, and I grew up on them, like other people did. I thought, well, nobody's ever thought to write a novel taking this version of Sherlock Holmes. So I thought, that could work really well, because you've got the template there. You've only got these films, which, which really do uh, remain loyal to Conan Doyle while updating the thing for the 40s. You've got the great wartime background. And I thought, well, yeah, that, 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 that could work. That'd be where like a Sherlock Holmes novel that's something a bit different. It wouldn't just be trying to redo uh, old versions of Sherlock Holmes. It would be actually something that would be new because it had never been done in a novel before. Um, and so I, I, took the, I printed up the basic idea, the picture of uh, Rathbone and Bruce and a title and just the basic blurb for the idea of it. I went to my uh, agent, no, my editor in Edinburgh, who did already published my two Richard Panny books. So I'm, I'm going to be talking an awful lot and I've written two period adventure novels set in the early part of the last century, uh, reviving John Buchan's um, hero from the 39 set of Titanic. And they, they were very happy with those I'd done. So when I sent them with this idea for Sherlock Holmes, my editor uh, just said to me, do this next and do three of them. So uh, they were quite enthused with just the basic idea. Um, it took a few weeks more before the idea came of uh, the plot of it. Once I got that, though, it really took off and all seemed to fit together really well. So that's as briefly as I can do it, how I came to write the book. Don't you feel a great amount of pressure writing about um, a classic um, like Sherlock Holmes? Like, don't you feel like there's there's going to be people that automatically don't like what you do because of it and others that love it and all that? Do, you know, isn't there a great amount of pressure just in the character itself? Well, I've kind of done that with the not-so-famous Richard Haney. Um, from John Buchan's novels. Um, he wrote five novels about Richard Panic, and I carried the adventures on into, into the, the Second World War. I don't too much length about that. And um, mostly, uh, yeah, the great majority got great reviews, and 
And I think there was a lot of Buffin books that wrote to me and I met them in person and they said how great it is how these characters back of it. Um, but there's also be a few dissenting voices and we might say, well, this is like sacred stuff, you shouldn't touch it. But that, but and that people are entitled to that. So I, I had a notion that maybe people would, would not take the World War II show at home. So I want to be very clear on the cover of books with my, uh, my, my cover editor. I said, got you on the, on the cover. It's got to say it's inspired by the, the 1940s film series. But I don't want anybody to think, who is this guy? He suddenly thinks he can stick Sherlock Holmes in World War II. Well, it was a ludicrous idea. I want to make it clear that I didn't come up with this, but I thought it'd be a great dad or a great thing for me. So, um, uh, and I feel that, that that version of Holmes is quite well established. So, um, uh, pressure, well, there's a pressure in it, yeah, but that just makes you work hard to get it right. So I was rereading, rereading, all they've been rereading the re 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 Conan Doyle story from my um, middle grade series, The Anthony Doyle Mystery. So I was carrying on reading those. So I was getting a really good feel for Dr. Watson's narrative voice and what the characters were like. And so in the course of writing this, uh, I was rereading again and um, also watching the films. And I think those films do a great job of, of transposing Holmes and Watson into the 1940s. And um, so I think I, I just I'd absorbed all that. And um, I found it was, it was actually really, really enjoyable to do, to, to, to get into that setting and get into those characters. Um, and, you know, uh, yes, it, it, it's hard work, but it was very pleasurable work. I would read a chapter back and think, that's really come off well. That, that really reads like a proper Sherlock Holmes story. You know, they've got telephones and they're flying in a, an RAF plane and stuff like that. It all, it all works out really well. Um, part of the thing with the book was, because I, I was aware that it was a bit of a transition, people who wouldn't be familiar with the films, and we think, what is this? This is really strange. This could, you shouldn't have Sherlock Holmes in this period. So the first three chapters of the book are actually kind of a short story. It's a, a locked room mystery in the Scottish capital, where Sherlock Holmes is flown up there to investigate the disappearance of a scientist inside a locked room. I thought, we'll have this, this little kind of classic kind of mystery first, and that will bring Holmes and Watson to the forefront, reintroduce the, 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 to the readers. Um, so they'll feel familiar. They'll feel, yeah, this is Holmes and Watson. This is the, where we get into the, into the more unusual story. And by, so by the time they come back to London and have to take on these killings, like the, the readers were not already familiar with that setting of Sherlock Holmes, would have kind of segued into it. They'd have a sense of comfort with the character in this new thing. And, um, and it was well, so uh, the reaction I've had, the reviews and uh, that has been a great success, which I, I'm, I'm really happy about. But what I want to do is for people to, to really love reading the books and enjoy them and, and get a great sense of joy out of them, which like, I, I get from watching the film Conan Doyle. Well, Crimson Jack. Now, who is Crimson Jack, and how do you come up with a with a character like that? Well. Um, so I had a had a just a throwaway plot that I, that I put on the blurb with the presentation of my editor. Um, but then I was leaping through a book uh, called The World of Sherlock Holmes, which is one of those Sherlockian books where you pretend that Sherlock Holmes was real and you sort of discuss what his life would have been like and what he encountered. And I got to a chapter on um, Jack the Ripper. Now, Jack the Ripper and Sherlock Holmes have faced each other a few times in Victorian times in novels and in, and in films. Um, and I suddenly thought, oh, I had this idea of a 1942 story set in the same year as the, the Universal series began. And I suddenly thought, well, supposing somebody is murdering women on the same date as Jack the Ripper. And he leaves a signature behind as Crimson Jack. Then Crimson Jack came to me very quickly. This is a natural variant on Jack the Ripper. Um, the weird thing was that after I, I, I spent a couple of hours, I think, of a title for the book. 
uh, and then when I, I thought, going back to the original titles of it, it was funny, well, the first Sherlock Holmes novel is a study in Scarlet. And because I had Crimson Jack, it seemed to be obviously falling into place. So uh, I can't say too much about Crimson Jack, because the identity of Crimson Jack is the central mystery of the whole book, of who he is and why he's committing these murders. Uh, so, uh, um, but yeah, ha having, one of the great things having a kind of ripper-style murders was, even though we're in London in 1942, um, it's got that Victorian vibe. This is, this is a kind of a, a new version of, of the, the most famous killer of Victorian London. And instead of having the, the Victorian fog, you have the blackout because of the German bombing. Um, London blacked out, obviously, and the light shining anywhere. So obviously, it was a great object for crime at the time. And so this killer is shrouded in darkness of the blackout rather than the fog. Um, and so it, 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 the, whole, the two things seem to come together really, really well. Um, and so you've got, in a sense, that, that kind of creepy, gothic feel of Jack the Ripper. At the same time, you've got the war raging and all the, the, the black and other aspects of uh, wartime London. So how much time does that take to uh, research a time like that? So, you, you know, you're covering it during the war, and um, because you have to make sure everything in the story is correct to time. Um, does that take a lot of your time? Well, there's two aspects to that. One was that I'd already written this novel, The 31 Kings, which is a canny novel set in 1940, which is, so I'd written a, a wartime novel. I'd also done a screenplay um, based on somebody else's novel set during the war. So I'd done a couple of things. I, I researched that period already because of that. Um, and watching the films, of course, gives you that, that, that was a source for how, how Sherlock Holmes functions in that. I don't see I've got a very good friend, her name's Kirsten Nichol, and um, she always insists I mention her, <laughs> but uh, it's quite right too, because she, she's, she has genealogy, she's got a degree in, in art history, she's very interested in all sorts of uh, minutiae, and she's accessed all sorts of online resources. So um, if I'm having trouble getting some information about something, I, I will just email her, and within an hour she'll, she'll dot it, you know, I'll say, well, what, 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 what sort of meal would you be having at this time of day? And she would know everything they could have under rationing, and all things they couldn't have. Um, things that would take me a long time to find out, and I've got to go about the book. Uh, also, other things about my, um, other aspects of the book, well, I wanted to cover Sherlock Holmes, what would he play on the violin in 1942? Well, I've got a good friend, Dr. Toby Lipman, who is a retired doctor, uh, and a violinist, a very good violinist. So he actually gave me medical advice when I asked questions about that. And also, when I want to talk about music, he gave me a lot of good, good uh, information for Sherlock Holmes and that. So basically, it, it's, you, you do as much research as you can yourself. Um, but if you know people who can help you out, that's always great. They, they know things that you don't. Uh, and so the book was read over by the FM30 to, to check it for any possible problems or flaws. You fill up most of my books now. And if you point out something that's perhaps a little unhistorical, I just think, well, does it need to be that way to make the story work? I mean, if you're, if you're bending things a little bit to make it the story, I think that's permissible, as long as you know you're doing it. So, um, yeah, I mean, there, there are certain things that I I've had for books to write, but I thought the, the amount of research involved would be crippling. I would simply couldn't do it. So, um, uh, yeah, so, it, and it's, of course, you find out interesting things. I mean, there were, there was a point in the book where there was a typewritten note that Holmes had analysed, and, um, and so I, I went into that to discover that, in fact, you can, in fact, uh, work out exactly the kind of typewriter that was used in any type of note. There are, in fact, the whole studies in this and systems of doing it. And this led me to uh, the name of Ordway Hilton, who's been doing this for the Chicago Police Department, the Science Department. 
and he was the document specialist at Holmes Court Henry, using all of the Hilton's method to analyze this type note they got. And so finding out all about this, how this all works, how you analyze these things is interesting. And I found that out by myself and uh, put that in. Um, so yeah, the, the, it's, it's part of the enjoyment of doing something. Um, but this, and you do just want to make sure you've not made a big mistake. So uh, I do have a fact checker who goes through it for me. And um, I have some good editors too, and my publishers, who will pick up things if I've got something wrong, which hasn't been too much so far. Um, so yeah, that, that, that's, it's something I'm aware of. It doesn't, it doesn't feel burdensome. It's a matter of making it an authenticity without beating people to death with your research. You don't spend pages describing wartime London or exactly how things were. That kind of, there's a story to be told and bringing in the things that are relevant to the story is what's important. I was wondering how you keep track of um, your storylines and your characters. Do you have tools, um, a process, any methods for doing that? Uh, well, I, I, uh, I do do a list of all the characters and type up what I know about them. And what, of course, some of them are like Sherlock Holmes and Watson are um, not my creations. But the thing with this particular version of Sherlock Holmes, of course, is that Sherlock Holmes and Dr. Watson in this story can't be exactly the same as Victorian Holmes and Watson. Um, you know, the, the original Sherlock Holmes is at the end of his career uh, on the brink, on the edge of uh, World War One. His last adventure, his final bow, takes place just before the outbreak of the First World War, when he's probably about 60. Now, in my story, we Dean Watson in the late 40s, early 50s, um, in 1942. So this meant there were young men in the First World War. So uh, I had to construct a different timeline for them. But they had to be the same people. They had, to, they had to end up being the Conan Doyle character, but by a different route. It's like if I'm, uh, if I'm in Scotland and I, I want to take a train um, from Edinburgh to Aberdeen, I can either go via Dundee or I can go via Perth. So it's different routes, but when you get to the end, you're still in, in Aberdeen. So this is the idea of this was to follow, to create the new timeline for these characters, um, but have them end up being the same men um, and perhaps have a deeper explanation of why they like that. Um, there, there are backgrounds to both of them that, that, that come from this story. And of course, it, 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 it's a heavy responsibility to keep them authentically Holmes and Watson while set in a different time period and with some different life experiences. Um, uh, but at the same time, it gives you certain freedom to explore it. So one of the things I did with that was to take elements of the actors and um, battle last one in Nigel Bruce. I made the, the characters in the group um, the same age as the actors were. And they both served in the First World War. Um, Basil Rathbone uh, was captain of a scouts unit, um, uh, Liverpool Scottish, and uh, his autobiography begins with a very harrowing adventure running across no man's land being shot at by the Germans. Uh, Nigel Bruce was shot in both legs in Belgium uh, by German machine gun fire. Um, and he was honorably discharged with injuries, but he, he uh, joined the army again and became an officer in a training camp. So these guys weren't just some sort of wet actors who've never done any proper work in their life. There were many stay of death in the face. And so I, I took some of that and put it into the DVD. So my homes in Watson also served in the First World War in very different ways. Um, and Watson is wounded the same way Nigel Bruce was. So it, the, the, the constructing of that timeline was um, quite, that was something I had to, had to map out. I, I had to take the, I, I, I thought there are various um, versions of the original Sherlock Holmes timeline that Sherlock Holmes but I took that and then I do my paralleling one of my own timeline, um, starting much later, and I just had to write that up. Then there was uh, having a, a timeline of, of the events in the war, so much from the war at the time. Then there was, I had a calendar of the days of the mystery. You know, you have to have the, so 
the dates of the murders are very important as to have that and what's happening between them, where, where it all ends up. So there are various timetables and background notes on the characters. Um, uh, that, and I, 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 yes, I just keep track of it. Uh, I don't do any software things, I just type up a lot of stuff. And, uh, but once you've written something down, it tends to stick in your mind. Um, but I would check something occasionally, and I always have a list of all the characters in the book that I add to, that I add characters to the book, and make little notes about them. Um, so, so, yeah. It, 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 it. We at Wondery, creators of Dr. Death, Scamfluencers, and Over My Dead Body, go deeper into complex true crime stories to give you an inside look at the facts. And now we're launching the ultimate true crime fan destination, Exhibit C. It's truly criminal. Wondery's Exhibit C gives you the detective's lens of all of the evidence, taking you step-by-step step through the twists and turns of each true crime case. Join the Exhibit C online community to access exclusive show merchandise, member-only content, and to hear directly from top criminal and social justice experts, witnesses, and investigators as they take us beyond the evidence and into the case file. Join now by following Wondery Exhibit C on Facebook or find us on the web at WonderyExhibitC.com and listen to true crime podcasts on Wondery and Amazon Music. Exhibit C, it's truly criminal. IKEA always asks, what makes a house a home? Comfort? Making your place your own? Mm. Affordable solutions created with the planet in mind? With IKEA, it's all of the above. And now you can afford even more with new benefits for IKEA family members, including 5% off on all eligible purchases in-store. Every visit, every day. Visit ikea-usa.com family to learn more and join. Offer valid starting 9-1-2022. Limited to qualifying purchases. Exclusions apply. Not valid on services. Discount applied in-store only before tax, shipping, and handling. Cannot be combined with coupons. Visit ikea-usa.com family for more details. I don't just keep it all in my head all the time. I mean, not clever enough for that. But I have lots of notes um, on my computer that I can, I can check up on to make sure I'm keeping things consistent and that, that, that it all makes sense. That you know, something that, that should take three days doesn't happen in the space of an hour. Like that. Well, do you have a subtext? Do you have a meaning? Do you have something that you hope people get from the book other than the story itself? I think uh, writing these kind of feud adventures, like the Japani book and this, this book and its sequel that I finished recently, um, there are, against the background of war, a lot of things are, are, are magnified. You know, questions of honor and uh, justice. So there's a, a great theme of justice in this book. Um, Holmes talks about justice and, uh, the novel split into three parts. The first part's called, um, deduction. The second part's called investigation. And the third part is called justice. So there are certain, I suppose, philosophical questions regarding the nature of justice that run through it. Um, but, but that is kind of a subtext, and I would think by the end of the book, uh, we just might be looking at it and have a few thoughts about about that, you know. Um, 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 so, uh, but in a sense, you don't want to hammer on too much about about stuff. I think, I think the great sense that I think the, the the sense of what these men have been through and experiences in wartime. Doctor Watson also we go into his grief of the death of his wife some years earlier. Um, you know, Watson's widows and Conan Bell stories, but not very much is made of that. So I, I make, make a bit more of that in this book. I have Watson reflect about a moving and death of life. So there's kind of thematics and there's kind of emotional resonances to it that I hope people will take away from it and really enjoy, um, getting a, an emotional sense from the characters. Um, late in the book, Sherlock Holmes is sort of a sense of Watson, um, one of the experiences in, in the Great War, in the First World War, 
that to a large extent it's more than his career made than the man he is. Um, and I think that that's a strong story and very moving. Uh, and so I think those, those are the things at the end of all people have. It's not just a romp, it's not just a lark and a bit of fun. Uh, there's actually a lot of depth to it emotionally and thematically. Um, uh, by the end of it, we'll stay with people as well as the, the happy glow of having enjoyed a really, really exciting and intriguing story. I read that you're a fencer, and I'm just wondering if, uh, if you've ever had the opportunity to uh, uh, use that in any of your novels or short fiction. Yeah, yeah, well, yeah, I, I haven't done it for a while because my knee's gone, but, uh, <laughs> but uh, probably because of the fencing. But yeah, uh, in, 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 I do mention in this book that, that Holmes is on the Cambridge fencing team at the university. So, so Conan Doyle, Sherlock Holmes is an expert boxer, um, which is one of the interesting aspects of him as a character, which is actually very athletic. Uh, I kind of thought a later version of Holmes, making him a still defensor, would, would be good. So um, I have recently completed all the editing on the second of my Sherlock Holmes novels, which is The Devil's Blade, Sherlock Holmes, 1943, which um, brings in Professor Moriarty and Colonel Sebastian Moran, Moriarty's henchman. And there is, in fact, um, in the first part of the book, a pretty exciting fencing match between Sherlock Holmes and, uh, and Colonel Sebastian Moran. And my wife, my wife is the first editor of my book. She, she's the first person to read the book and edits them ruthlessly and cruelly and tells me anything that's just not good enough and makes me work harder to make them really good. And when she read that bit, she said, that's really good. You, you can tell you, you have fenced because you know how it all works. Um, and this is a, it's supposedly a sporting thing with the two of them. The, the swords have got, you know, covers on them so you can't stab somebody with it. But I, I having fenced, um, some rather wild fencing matches, even with some guarded blades, you can get pretty seriously bruised. Uh, do it um, a friend and I were fencing. We were actually warned by the president match to, to tone it down. We were being too, too vicious. So you can do a pretty pretty violent fencing match, even when it's not not to the death. So I'm very pleased that that came out, and I got the chance to, to use some of that knowledge uh, in the story and to present Holmes as a really good fencer. Um, so yeah, I, I did get to use that, and uh, I think it also because. Battle Battle Rathbone was actually an expert fencer. He was twice an army fencing champion. And um, recently we were watching The Mark of Zorro, where he fences her own power, and Rathbone is the villain. It's one of the greatest fencing matches of any film ever. And but they can do that because Rathbone himself is, is so good at it. Um, and he fences Robin Hood and other things as well. And so that, it was partly a, a, a tribute to, to that man to, to give Sherlock Holmes a tale and have him demonstrate it. Um, yeah an extended fencing match in the second uh, book of my Sherlock Holmes adventures. Um, I, I enjoyed that tremendously, being able to do that. And then use that experience. So yes, that, that did come into play. Um, one, of, one of my more, more physical talents. So I don't have that many factual talents, but um, that was one that came into play. Yeah. <laughs> I was going to say, with your wife being the editor, you probably have to fence. <laughs> yeah. Well, she, she fenced briefly, not as long as I did. Um, yeah, but she, well, she, she, she's a writer before me. That's inspired me to get into writing. She's like a fancy adventure. She's got a whole series of books with Catherine Cup together. And, um, and uh, then she was teaching creative writing and had her own private editing business. So that, uh, uh, her editing me is sometimes, sometimes a tense experience. It can be quite tense <laughs> <laughs> sometimes. <laughs> if we disagree over something, you know, that, that I say, well, no, it's fine the way it is. No, no, you have to change this. Um, but what it means is it gives me a content right when the, I finish the book at home and send off the publisher, I know it's in really good shape. Uh, and so, uh, anything I back from the publisher, there's never any major things wrong with the book. There's only a little 
little things they want to, to polish or things like that a little bit. So, uh, and that, that's nice to have that, that to, to know when the book goes out, it's in really good shape, it's been worth all the suffering. And our marriage holds together very well. I mean, we're still, you know, it's our 40th anniversary next year. So um, I think ultimately it strengthened it, the fact we, we do work together on things. Um, uh, you know, when she was writing, I, I, I kind of pitched in here and there, helping out with bits of that, not the editing. Um, and so we've worked together on these things over the years, and I think it's been, been good for us to, to, to do that. And I guess we, I say, great confidence that I'm writing. Um, if, if there's something I've missed, something that I, I've maybe not hit the right note on, she'll read it and spot it and tell me what to do. And um, that'll be it. And also she does quite a bit of research as well. She will research things while I'm writing, knowing what's coming up in the story. Um, so I think I've got a, kind of a, a researching team, which is a fantastic benefit to have. Um, not that we've got that. Uh, and so having this, this support network of, of family and friends is great. And uh, I, with everything I get from my publisher um, over here from Berlin, Polygon, is very, very good. It's, it's, uh, sometimes spotting things, I thought, gosh, I, I, I can spot that. So that's not quite correct. So, um, yeah, it's, it's, it's kind of a team effort, although, you know, I am writing this. I do the hard work about the writing it, which is both time consuming. I'll take, I'll have my name on the cover mm. of the book because I think I, I deserve that. <laughs> So, so your characters, where do you get all your characters from in the story? Like uh, the outskirt, the outside characters. Are they people you know, people you've seen somewhere? Um, where does that come from? I, I don't really base them on people I know mostly. Um, obviously, the hardcore cut in this book, uh, there's Holmes, Watson, uh, Mrs. Hudson, Inspector Lestrade, Mycroft Holmes, if I'm not, um, and Wiggins um, from the, the regulars, who's now a young man. And, and a, a fire warden in, in London. Um, so all the other characters, of course, invented by me um, for the story. Uh, one, of the, one of the most important is um, Gail, Gail Preston, who's an NBC radio reporter in London at the time. She becomes very much part of the whole investigation. And um, she's inspired by Helen Hyatt, who was a real radio reporter at this time. She reported uh, a radio broadcast from while the war was in, in London and on the continent. Um, and she wrote a book about it. Her experiences. So uh, this, she inspired that. I, I was looking for a strong female character, and I thought, well, yeah, an, an American woman in London working for NBC, that, 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 that's good. And she uh, has a very pivotal role to play in, in this story. Um, part of the fun of the, the thing is, when I was writing the book, was I was imagining it as a film made in the 1940s and casting as many people as I could in all the various roles. Obviously, because it's got Rathbone and Bruce and Hudson. And um, Dennis Hoey's version of Director Lestrade are all coming from the film. Um, but I, I kind of, as a game, was just casting everybody as well along. So uh, I, I cast Alice Faye in the role of Gail Preston, who is not as famous as she should be now, but she, she had a fantastic uh, uh, career in musicals and drama um, in Hollywood. But then in the 40s, she retired. She married Harris, which is very smart. Phil Harris, a bandwagon comedian. And gave up this whole career to raise their family, their, their daughters, um, which a Martha Jones character. I mean, they, they were together until death. It was them. They also had a family. So, and uh, seeing her in films that she, yeah, Gail is played by uh, Alice Faye. And um, Eric Blore, who played a lot of comic roles in, in uh, 30s and 40s films, the parts of him in it. And then um, all the way through it, I was able to find somebody for all, all the parts. Um, then come up with the characters. They just, they, 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 they spring into mind. It's like 
there's not really a method for keeping characters. Um, have a, a somewhat slimy reporter, which is a bit unfair about it. Most of it aren't slimy this guy is. Um, and, and, and a repugnant artist turned up in it as well. And that was fun to write. I guess it's writing characters who aren't very nice are actually much more fun to write. Um, and when you're writing a mystery like this, it's a matter of there should be lots of characters in it because they're the suspect, you know, which one of them um, is, is, is the murderer and why are they doing it? So uh, you do present characters who are interesting in themselves um, and have their own kind of story to carry on. Uh, and so they seem to pop it into my head and then uh, and go from there. But this is a bonus of, I will put it online at some point. I do have an entire cast list for the whole film, of every part that's been played in it. And so actor and actress for every one of them. Uh, just because it's fun to imagine it actually being a 1940s black and white film. Um, I'm wondering too, uh, with your characters, when you create your characters, um, do you have an inner monologue in your head? Can you hear your characters? I know I hear voices. <laughs> that's, the, uh, that's the joke, but uh, ah. how does that work for you? <laughs> oh, no, wait, yeah, well, I, I, didn't, I don't know if you guys are writing here, yeah. Uh, I, I, I figure my strength as an author are um, plotting and dialogue. And I think the characters come out mainly in the dialogue, the way they speak, the things they say. Um, and so, you know, Holmes and Watson have a very sort of high diction. They're, they're highly educated men and still kind of old fashioned, even though they're not Victorian gentlemen. They're still, they're still, they've been to public schools and they have that kind of thing. Whereas, um, um, the Inspector Lestrade, um, he's not much of a character in Conan Doyle, but Dennis always Lestrade. He's not a common man character. And I really enjoyed writing for him, uh, of make, giving him a, a kind of almost cockney richness to his expression. He's got lovely tons of phrase are things that Holmes and Watson wouldn't say. And so his character comes up very much in that. And that his attitudes of being not really applauding policemen, but actually a good, a good sort of hard-working staff at the job. And then with having um, a character of Gail, a method character in a bit, that she of course talks in a way totally different than anybody else in, in the book. Uh, she, she has a kind of slangy American way of talking. It was also really fun to write, especially when it's set in a kind of 40s. Um, thing there, and uh, so, so yeah, I, I find that the, as well as a slight physical description, right, the dialogue about the characters, the things they say, you know, really bring out another nice touch to these things. Right in this period, is and these days everybody smokes, mm. and um, so people can you know, there's pipes and cigars <laughs> and cigarettes, and that, you know, and it, these are great props when mm. characters are doing things. You know, you'd be probably play light a cigarette in a certain way and stub it out decisively and that makes sense. Mm. Or they can blow smoke slowly what they're thinking. And there's, there's all these things you can do with that as a thought. Um, which nowadays people cut smoke in their story would be odd. Um, it would be a, a thing that would be too much. But then, um, it's a whole thing, homes and his pipes and mm. all that. Um, are all very much part of the whole milieu. And it gives, and once again, their character expresses. Um, uh, you know, does somebody smoke cigarettes all the time? Do they have the occasional pipe in the front and that's it? Do they smoke big cigars? Um, and so the, the, that's a period thing that allows you to, to, to give that aspect to the character that you couldn't really do in the same way now. Now, do you have a, a, a website or a place that people can find you or find out more about your books and stuff? Um, yeah. Um, at the end of every one of my books, I have a, a, an author's afterword to explain a couple of things. But at the very end, I have my website, which is www.harris, H-A-R-R-I-S, hyphen authors, A-U-T-H-O-R-S, dot com, all small case. And, um, and that has 
biographical information about me, got stuff about the book, got all my books listed, things about them, a few articles I've written in connection with the book. It's also got stuff about um, my games that I've made, uh, and uh, my wife's books are featured on there as well. So um, uh, it, it's a treasure chest of fascinating information, which I'm still trying to add to. I've I, I made up this cast list for uh, the, the novels, and I need to get that actually online as well. It's friends that run the website for me, so I, I have no idea how to do it. So I just send them things, and then when they've got time, they'll put them up there. I really appreciate the work they, they, they do for that. Um, so yes, uh, that, that's it. Uh, you, you just go around and find me, Robert DeHart, and you'll find this on there. There's also links to a comedy podcast that I do with my friend Alan McFadden, which will be new material for now. Um, it's called Quantum Fridge. It's a comedy podcast mm. company. And we do, um, we have a fabulous cast of new comedy shows, uh, you know, science fiction and mystery and um, adventure uh, comedies. Um, but we do also, there's links to that too. So anybody plunging into the Harris website will find games, comedy, novels, and, and everything your heart could desire other than whiskey and cigars. Oh, too bad. Uh, well, we'll have that actually linked up to our site as well so people listening can do one That'd be great, yeah, yeah. So that's easy. And uh... a nice thing too is because people can contact me through the website and I, I, it's really nice to go right to me and say I want to have enjoyed the book. That, 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 really take the time to do that. But, uh, you don't get the direct uh, you know, experience of, uh, of people enjoying the book um, because you know, it's a distance. Um, I've been writing for our, our, our podcasting about we had a friend Alan and I wrote a, a comedy which was uh, recorded, by the, recorded by the BBC many years ago um, and it was a big live event and it was called a play a pie and a pint and we had a pint of beer and a scotch pie we were watching this, this comedy we see on about moving the scotch and it was fantastic to have written something and be sitting there in an audience that was just enjoying the hell out of it with a laughing and cheering and like an applauding indoor. Uh, and that, that's a great thing to get. Also, um, because about my younger books, my, my books I've written for middle grade um, kids, I've done a lot of visits to schools and, uh, yeah, and I get to put on plays with the kids and do story making adventures with them. And um, it, it's wonderful having them react, you know, how much, how much they enjoy it, how enthusiastic they are about, about all this stuff. And so I think when you're sitting at home by yourself writing a novel, you, for grown ups, you send it out there, you don't get that kind of thing. So people do write. Um, I really appreciate that when you get in touch and they want to enjoy the book and ask for more. Luckily, as I've mentioned, um, people ask me, are you going to get any more of these? Yes, it's, it's all done. Um, it's really coming out, well, it's coming out over here next year, and I'm hopefully Pegasus will be very keen to do this again. Uh, another one, because it seems to go down very well over in the States, getting great reviews in major publications and, um, and getting publicity people like you that have taken interest in it, which is great. Because the worst thing for any author is to put all this all the heart and all the talent into a book. And then it just disappears. Nobody even knows about it. It's not nothing to do with it's good, bad, or indifferent. People don't read it because they don't hear about it. So um, you want attention for the book. So uh, I'm really glad that the concept of uh, doing a 1942 Sherlock Holmes based on those films has intrigued enough people that it's, it's actually getting quite a bit of attention. And that means people will hear about it and um, give it a try. And I hope they'll all enjoy it. They'll enjoy it tremendously. Um, that's what I want more than anything else. People will read it and have a a fantastic time reading it. We'll, we'll just be completely absorbed in it. We'll get to the end of all those, we'll really satisfied and um, be gasping for more because there is more. Wow. There you go. Well, uh, we appreciate yeah. it. How was, how was writing during the pandemic for you? Did it affect you at all? 
not oh. much different because <laughs> you're just yeah. in a pool. Um, you know, we were lucky last summer. We've, we've got a nice garden. We live in a nice neighborhood. We've got a dog, so we can take dog for walks on the beach and everything. Um, with stuff like this, we're keeping in touch online, which is really great. We can have to contact family and friends on Skype. We have weekly, uh, weekly meetings with family. Particularly with my son, um, who works in publishing too. He and I meet uh, uh, on a Skype session with a few beers. We call it Man Skype. Oh. <laughs> so we were able to still, you know, have a kind of chat we normally have, and another friend of mine, we he joined in with it too. And uh, it was just great to kind of sit around and, and do the kind of talking you do with your friends and your family. Um, it was nearly as good as actually being there, and it meant you didn't lose that. So, because uh, you didn't have contact with people. Um, and then it, we, earlier this year, we put together a bunch of writers online to, to celebrate the friend Gene Owen's birthday. We've got about 10 writers online together on a Zoom thing. Uh, and it's just really nice to be stay in touch with, with other writers as well and see what they're doing. Um, so, yeah, I mean, for what we do, we work at home like this. I know some people, this has been a terrible time for them, what they've had to go through. They've, they're stuck in an in a, in a apartment block with four kids who can't go to school. All this it must be really, really tough. So it's been easy for us because our kids are all growing up. Um, so, uh, yeah, I, 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 some writers I've seen online saying, oh, I, I can't concentrate. Or, no, it didn't really affect me. Um, it's been pretty soft for me. I, I, I appreciate how how easy this has been for me to put how some people who've got difficult jobs to do and you know to look after. So it didn't really impinge. Although you know, writing about World War Two, it's not the same thing. But life is restricted then by rationing and blackouts and things. And the restrictions we've got now, you know, well, comparatively slight, really. Yeah. Um, so, uh, but I'm, I'm hoping, I'm hoping that we'll all be over soon. Yeah. Over <laughs> and uh, uh, and get go do some traveling. Yeah. Um, yeah. yeah. Well, it's been a great show. Thank you for coming on. Our our book today that we're talking about is a study in Crimson Sherlock Holmes, 1942, and the author was our guest, Robert J. Harris. Thank you. Well, thank you. Thanks for mentioning in the book. I, I hope that you, the listeners will um, go and try it out and really enjoy it. And um, and be back for the next one. <laughs> I'm sure they will. To find out more about our show, guests, or to listen to past shows from our archive, please go to www.houseofmysteryradio.com. The mission has been completed. The end! By George, he's got it! It is the end! How dare you? She lying to me. This has been a production of Something Weird Media. IKEA always asks, what makes a house a home? Comfort? Making your place your own? Mm. Affordable solutions created with the planet in mind? With IKEA, it's all of the above. And now you can afford even more with new benefits for IKEA family members, including 5% off on all eligible purchases in-store. Every visit, every day. Visit ikea-usa.com slash family to learn more and join. Offer valid starting 9-1-2022. Limited to qualifying purchases. Exclusions apply. Not valid on services. Discount applied in-store only before tax, shipping, and handling. Cannot be combined with coupons. Visit ikea-usa.com slash family for more details. ACAST powers the world's best podcasts. Here's a show that we recommend. Hi, I'm Helen Lewis, and I want to tell you about a podcast I've made for BBC Radio 4 and BBC Sounds. It's called The New Gurus, and it's about how everywhere you look on the internet, people are giving advice. 
Advice they claim will transform your life. Advice that gets them thousands, even millions of devoted followers. These online prophets are telling us how to eat, how to think, how to get rich, how to find love, how to manage our time. So how exactly are these gurus changing our lives and the world around us? And who holds them to account? Find out by subscribing to The New Gurus wherever you get your podcasts. Acast helps creators launch, grow, and monetize their podcasts everywhere. Acast.com You've been listening to the House of Mystery radio show. To find out more about our guests, hosts, or shows, go to www.houseofmystery.com Show is over for now. Was it as good for you as it was for me? Yeah. Good night. This has been a production of Something Weird Media. I'll be back.